Hi, I'm Sarah Kavanaugh, and this is Peaceful Exit. Every episode, we explore death, dying, and grief through stories by authors familiar with the topic. Writers are our translators. They take what is inexpressible, impossible to explain, and they translate it into words on a page. Today, we're talking with my dear friend, Christy Nelson, who has been sharing her wisdom with Peaceful Exit for many years. She's a longtime stage four cancer survivor, and she's the author of Wake Up Grateful, the transformative practice of taking nothing for granted. How are you today? I'm good. This is such a timely and beautiful book. Wake Up Grateful, the title alone radiates hope and positivity. What inspired you to write it? You know, in the most basic sense, because I think these conversations matter more than almost anything else. Agreed. The opportunity to have these kinds of conversations and to catalyze a sense of both kind of urgency in people and possibility and that we actually can live gratefully. Yes, daily gratitude is so powerful. And I know it's helped you get through some extremely difficult times. You're a cancer survivor. And when you were first diagnosed, you were suddenly having to sort through your feelings um, around death and loss and realizing most of your thoughts and views weren't really your own, but heavily influenced by your parents. Both my mother and my father had a lot of trauma around death and a lot of associations around death that made it super hard for them. And then I was diagnosed in my early 30s with stage four cancer, and that didn't just offer me the opportunity, it forced me into the opportunity to address those narratives that I had unconsciously internalized. And I would say I was not aware of what I had taken on that wasn't mine until I started to forge my own relationship, which was much more trying to befriend death because I had to face this prospect of my own mortality. And how I wanted to do that was in partnership (laughs) with death and, and in partnership with life and really conscious and eyes wide open and to not deny in any way and to not to not feel that something of my life was being stolen from me. And I wanted to feel that my life had been enough. And that felt like a powerful thing. Cancer was a death sentence back then. It really was. And it's not like today where we talk about it. You know, many cancers are no longer fatal. Yes. There's so much treatment. But back then, your stage four diagnosis must have overwhelmed you with thoughts of, how am I going to survive this? Yeah. When I was in my early 30s, there was this whole idea that cancer was a death sentence, but also if you had the right attitude, you could cure yourself. So there was a tyranny in both ways, actually, because it was far enough along in cancer to have been influenced heavily by the New Age movement and the your attitude is everything. And if you don't get your attitude right, you're doomed. And if you get it right, you're going to be saved. (laughs) And so it was like, oh my God, I felt like I was walking on a tightrope, you know, because 
how do you do that when you're dealing with stage four cancer? Um, how, how do you get your attitude just right? Because for me, it was, there was so many feelings and it was, I was scared I might die and I was sad I might die. But then I felt like, oh God, if I'm sad, then I'm going to really ruin my chances of living. And <laughs> you don't have and the if right I'm, attitude. <laughs> if I'm scared, I'm, a, I'm just doomed, you know? It's like, if there's anything, so I'm trying, you know, it was... There's a lot around being ill. It's super hard and everybody has an idea about what you should do. Mm-hmm. And we're on the receiving end of so much love and care that feels like pressure. It feels like mandates. It feels like advice that's often unsolicited. There's so much that comes at us when we're really sick and it comes out of care, a lot of it. And I think also there's all that stuff about death is also woven in there. Mm -hmm. So it's not just here's how you're going to stay alive, but here's what the prospect of your dying is bringing up for me. So then all of a sudden you're managing everybody else's feelings. And yes, and there's layers and layers. It's like you're being kind of layered on with all this stuff. And, And so it took a lot for me to sort my way through and including finding my way into a different kind of relationship to the prospect of dying. Different than your parents. Different than my parents, different than the people around me. It was my own. And that felt super important. It it was informed by reading, by praying, by meditating, by talking with people who I trusted, um, by becoming a student of the possibility of death and what that and the reality of death, the truth of death, and and how I could be in a different relationship with that than I was seeing around me. And that was an amazing thing to get to go through at 33. Pretty incredible. You mentioned having to manage other people's feelings around your diagnosis and the possibility of your dying, and I'm remembering that with my brother. I know that was particularly true of your father. For my father there was a pall over everything. It was as if I was already kind of gone. His his grief was so immense that there was no room for the fact that I was still alive going through treatment and everything. It was like he was preparing himself for the possibility of my death. And so it felt like there were often times that it felt very morbid, you know, Mm -hmm. and I remember being in the car when we were coming back from chemotherapy in Boston, he was driving and I said, dad, pull over the car. You have to pull over the car. It's like, I was so frustrated. I'm not dead yet. Like you can't write my eulogy. My death is not going to be your tragedy. Like, please. So then what I feel as soon as I say that is I don't want to be a failure. I don't want my death to be a failure. Like, please, you know, and I felt that from both of my parents that my death would be a failure. It would be a failure of my will. It would be a failure of like loving life enough. There was a message that was so heavy in the space around me, which was, you know, the belief even that if you wanted to live enough, you would live. And only people died of cancer who wanted to die. I mean, people literally said that to me. And I just felt like what a loaded experience to be so ill. And then to feel that I couldn't just face the prospect of dying with any degree of peace. It was so heavily laden with all of these associations and narratives that I was 
inheriting and absorbing. And so it took very strong, loving boundary setting with the people around me. And I had to contain my space. A lot of times I had to, you know, push things away. I had to forge my own relationship with myself, with something larger than myself in order to try to get my own rudder on my own boat. Like, where am I going here? And how do I feel about it? And what's really true for me? So that took a lot of carving away and redefining that what love meant for me often was loving people so much that I had to have boundaries around my own experience. It just took so much courage to do that. I remember my mother never did. She never set those boundaries and she did end up transitioning from her stage four cancer. And I wonder how much in your experience of those boundary settings and that saying no to the tragic narrative that your dad had was what saved you. You know, you you were able to live into that courage. You know, I am still here after so many years for I have no idea what reasons and why, honestly, because I'm not a person who makes those kinds of pronouncements like, I'm, you know, I was saved because (laughs) I'm here because, because I think there's so much danger in that. And also I, people would ask me, how did you do it? You know, as if there was a formula and I have to always say, there's really, I don't believe there's a formula. I don't believe that if you do this thing right or this thing wrong, you're either going to die or live. Or it was more like what I really learned was how to trust myself, how to develop an interior litmus test, an interior touchstone. That was what developed in me in my early 30s that was so helpful, which was I could hold a possibility or advice or a feeling or someone else's counsel or a, you know, a prognosis or a doctor experience with a doctor. I could hold it against something inside myself and know whether it felt right or wrong for me. And I had to do a lot of saying to doctors and to family and friends and people at strangers, that's, that's not my truth. And I, I need to set a boundary here. That was such a powerful formative experience don't know anything about what it contributed to my lifespan after that, but it contributed to my quality of life after that in that being able to do that. And sometimes it's under tremendous strain and pressure that we develop those capacities. This was one, the cauldron of cancer taught me that. Beautifully said. Okay. We've talked about your dad and how he dealt with death, but your mom, she had a complicated relationship with death too. My mother's mother got cancer. She had what they believe is kind of thymus originating Hodgkin's cancer. When my mother was around eight, she was quite sick. My mom was the oldest. She had a younger brother and their mom was very ill. And at the time, blood transfusions were the only treatment. And so, you know, she was living with this very sick mother who ended up succumbing to the cancer at 11 when she was age 11. And I do believe that for my mom, her life got really hard with a a new stepmom that was hard and a new half sibling that was hard. It's just things got very difficult for her growing up. And I think my mother really felt that 
her mother's death was a kind of abandonment of her, like that it felt, and how can it not feel that way, right? On so many levels as a young, really young person, that it felt very abandoning. And then when I was four, my sister was one and my brother was three, my mother was diagnosed with her own thymus originating lymphoma, Hodgkin's. So she was 24 years old. Mm. And when she was diagnosed with that, it took a tremendous, huge surgery. She did cobalt radiation treatments that were brand new. She, we had no money, so she had to take a bus from Eugene to Portland every single day to have these radiation treatments. And she lived. She survived that cancer. And one of the reasons why, like part of her legacy is, I didn't want to abandon you the way that I had been abandoned. So what was fascinating about that is then death became a failure of will. Right. So my mother lived right into this extraordinary, she lived 55 years longer. And, and yet her death to herself at 78 was a tragic disappointment. She just did not want to die. And no matter how much I could say, your life has been a miracle, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for her. And, and then, so that's part of what I had to encounter was those experiences with my father and my mother, their relationships, the prospect of my dying, they were so strong, so cemented by their own early growing up. And I was the exact same age that my mother's mother was when she died. And so when I was diagnosed, again, third generation female lymphoma, I think for my mother, it was just a firestorm right. of terror and grief. And yet I didn't want to disappoint her, but I needed to be able to figure out how, if I was going to need to die, how I could do that without failing her, failing myself, failing life, how I could work with that. And that, that's been kind of a theme in my adult life. It's so interesting how everyone processes grief differently. Every grief has its own flavor, mm -hmm. its own expression, right? So every single grief being so different. And for each of us, you know, both the stories that we've inherited and the losses that we suffer shapes our experience. And, and they're, they're incomparable, on right. so many levels, right? There's so much that we share in common and, and that allows us to accompany one another. And yet the way we experience grief and express grief is so distinct and individual. And I think that's very, that's really rich terrain, mm -hmm. you know, for, for us to explore. I love how you choose to step into that grief and face it head on. The place where befriending death feels so vital and so life-giving to me, so enlivening, aliveness creating, like, and, and that it, for me, that quality of aliveness relies on the acknowledgement of impermanence. It's just planted in it for me. And the more I deny my impermanence and my mortality, the less alive I feel, the more I embrace it, the more alive I feel. So there's this way in which I feel I'm interested in my own experience of walking through life 
in a way where I'm always really on some level preparing to go and to be ready at any moment, knowing that we have no idea. Is it minutes? Is it hours? Is it days, months, years? We have no idea. Like, I love that it's the most unknown thing. And, and that, that embracing that place of absolute not knowingness and the power of that and saying, I want to live into the state. And so it's like, and is this enough? Yes, this is enough. And yet I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And yet befriending death brings me so much more fully alive so that I can hold that space of perhaps this really is enough. I'm ready to go. And, and then continuing to live is so rich from that place. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but it's so profound and poignant for me where it lives inside of me. How do you befriend death on a daily basis? I wake up every day and give thanks for another day. I do not take almost anything for granted, almost anyone for granted, almost any experience or moment or beauty for granted. Like I, that's my practice. Mm -hmm. And gratefulness is the practice of taking nothing for granted. Gratefulness for me is so clearly about, and I've started to actually use this language of remembering to take nothing for granted, Mm. that the practice is whatever helps us remember. It's not a new concept. I think it's reclaiming taking nothing for granted, because I think we know that as a reference point, there's states of aliveness. And when we're young in certain ways, and there's times in our lives when we are taking nothing for granted, and it's those peak awareness experiences, peak, peak experiences that so many people these days, especially I will say like this, the whole psychedelic movement is based on creating the conditions of accessing peak awareness, peak experience that really is taking nothing for granted. Like you can, you have perspective and you see so much and you feel so much. And those experiences are states of aliveness that for me also include the awareness of our mortality. What does a peaceful exit look like to you? Oh God, I've got so much to do. <laughs> like, yikes, the paperwork. The, but, but it's not, it's not there because I trust that, you know, all those things will tend to themselves in some ways or other people. <laughs> I'm going to be leaving a lot of people things to do. Um, but what I don't want to leave people with is unaddressed and unresolved relational things, whether they're difficult or whether they're beautiful and loving or whether they're both. And they're usually both, you know, it's like, there's all that, all of those things that want to be addressed in order for us to leave at peace. And that feels like the biggest invitation to me is living my life that way, not waiting not waiting. And, you know, and I'd love, you know, a good, uh, a good harp and I'd love a good, you know, like some, okay, good. some nice incense and candles and, you know, someone massaging my feet and, you know, I'd love all those things. And I'd love to really be, 
you know, as much as possible, free from pain. Those are the kinds of things. So physically, those we have people who will set those conditions up for us at the end of our lives. But we have to take responsibility for creating the internal peace that will let us That's right. drop, drop into that peace. That's right. I encourage you to articulate that. Articulate everything, including the harp and the, <laughs> and the foot rub and everything. Yes. Write yes. it all down or record it or whatever. <laughs> and the music and everything. Right? Everything. And all, all of that feels very, it feels absolutely counter to how my, so much of my family and so much of death has been dealt with right. um, around me. Is, is it's not just peaceful exit, it's also explicit. Yes, <laughs> Ex- like, explicit exit. <laughs> that is actually honest. You That's know, a like, whole new title. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. And it was so good to talk to you and great to see you. Thank you for listening to Peaceful Exit. You can learn more about this podcast and my online course at my website, peacefulexit.net. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know. You can rate and review this show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Large Media. You can find them at larjmedia.com. Special thanks to Ricardo Russell for the original music throughout this podcast. More of his music can be found on Bandcamp. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Sarah Kavanaugh, and this is Peaceful Exit.